Area 941 podcast are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. This is the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. I'm your host, Richard Walensky. We're talking about books, about theater, about film, and sometimes about politics. Most of these interviews were originally conducted for KPFA's Bookwaves program and its predecessor, Probabilities. On October 12, 2013, novelist Oscar Hijuelos passed away of a sudden heart attack. I had the fortune to speak with Oscar on three separate occasions. The last time, on June 16, 2011, Oscar discussed his latest work, a memoir titled Thoughts Without Cigarettes, as well as what would turn out to be his final novel, Beautiful Maria of My Soul, a sequel to his Pulitzer Prize-winning novel, The Mambo Kings Play Songs of Love. Before we discuss Thoughts Without Cigarettes, your memoir, I'd like to talk about your previous novel called Beautiful Maria of My Soul, which had a very, very sad publishing history. I don't want to say it's a sequel. It's kind of an uh, alternate viewpoint of the Mambo Kings play Songs of Love and should have gotten the full buildup, but it came and went without a trace. What happened? My publishing house, Hyperion, basically dropped the ball, in my opinion. I don't think they really knew what to do with a literary novel. I don't really know what happened, but, you know, like the L.A. Times gave it an ecstatic review, and it was generally well-reviewed across the country, but it's my own hometown, New York City. The New York Times blew it off. They never reviewed it, neither in the Sunday nor in the Daily, and I'm pretty sure, aside from being the first Latino to ever win a Pulitzer, I'm also the first Pulitzer Prize winner to have been blown off. You know, that newspaper has an incredible influence on a lot of decision-making in terms of libraries and all this and that. There was no tour, and, you know, getting the word out there mainly depended on on venues that I, I don't know if my readership are as attached to you know, the internet and, and that sort of thing as they would be to, like, the independent stores and so forth. So I don't know what happened, really. But I was disappointed because I think it's a very interesting novel, however you may feel about it. People can now get the paperback. Let's talk a mm. little about Beautiful Maria of My Soul before mm. we move on to Thoughts Without Cigarettes. Mm-hmm. What made you return to the Mambo Kings? Was it in writing Thoughts Without Cigarettes things began coming up for you? You know, I'd worked on a stage version of the Mambo Kings. Yeah, I saw it. Did you enjoy that show? It was half good. It struck me that it was too much the work of one person, Mr. Glimsher, whose ego got in the way. That was just my thought. Yeah, yeah, that's a good, that's a good, <laughs> that's a pretty uh, uh, honest uh, appraisal. Yeah, but it had nice qualities to it. Oh, and, the, uh, the dancing was spectacular. Yeah, I just felt yeah. that if he had realized that the songs and that part of it could have been played straight without music and just yeah. had a lot of music and dancing, yeah. it yeah, would have worked. Yeah, well, you know, one of the songs went, when I'm feeling blue and I don't know what to do, I'm mambo, mambo. <laughs> when I have a frown and my mouth is upside down, I'm mambo. And, you know, to be frank, that's not the conception I had of Cesar Castillo. But, you know, it was, a, it was so complicated, Richard, that the producer wanted an upbeat family show and they kept 
getting involved and they didn't really know what they were doing. And since I'm never going to work with them again, I may as well say my, what it was. But while I was working on the show, I kept thinking about the character of Maria. And I had certain things I wanted to say about her in the musical, but they were basically rejected. It's getting too complicated, the story. I wanted to pursue Maria's life, and these were notions that I had while I was writing the original novel, Mambo Kings, but could not include because they would have made the book disproportionately longer. You know, it was just something in the back of my head for years, and so I had thought to introduce some of those notions to the musical, but it was impossible. But they remained, and so I decided to just pursue uh, my vision of her in another novel. And that required the decision that she would wind up in Miami. How much time did you spend down there in research? Well, I spent time there when I was a kid, and, uh, you know, I, and unfortunately I ended up in Miami Miami every so often, but, you know, it doesn't take much to uh, set off my imagination. I stay in a hotel there, the Biltmore. My father worked for a Biltmore, and also it looks just like the Hotel Nacional in Havana. Like Maria, she's a dance instructor, and I remember I used to watch the dance teachers at the Biltmore working, and you know, stuff like that. I mean, it was more of an intuitive take on Maria's life. She's also an illiterate, and I mean, there are so many elements about her personality that I tried to put into the book that came very naturally to me. In retrospect, do you think parts of Maria come out of uh, your aunts or your mother? Interesting. My mother was a very beautiful woman, and God, did she talk about it all the time, but she wasn't a sex bomb the way Maria is. As a concept, Maria, to me, when I was writing Mambo Kings, of course, we know that Nestor writes the song, Beautiful Maria, My Soul. But in a way, his longing for this sexual panther or whatever you want to call her, uh, this sultry woman who any man would die for, to me, it was really about his longing for Cuba. And on a symbolic level, she was Cuba. And so when I was writing Beautiful Maria of My Soul years later, it made sense to me that she undergo the experience of many Cubans, not all, but some, by coming to the United States as, as an exile. And, and so in a way, it was a bit of a parable about what happened. I mean, but she never, she never feels really truly grounded in America and that experience. And that's another theme in the book, I think. Well, that theme definitely resonates with your mother uh, and her own feeling lack of groundness yeah. in America as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. And there's a lot of that. I mean, I grew up with her. I mean, she was anxious. When I was growing up, for many reasons, among them, she didn't really learn the language of English until many, many years later. And even then, her English was charmingly uh, different. But she also just had all the financial insecurities. And, you know, I mean, we lived with this specter of, I don't know why. I mean, I guess my father made a decent living, but he didn't make a the kind of living where you could stash away money. You know, he just sort of kept ahead of the wolves. We weren't poor, but we sure lived like we were because there was no expenditure of, you know, we never went on vacations. We never went to dinners out. So many things we never did. Under all that, there was some kind of cultural anxiety that had to do with my father's own habits at home. Like he liked to drink too much, I'm afraid to say. He smoked constantly. He didn't look out for himself. On the other hand, he was a very nice, kind man. And mostly my mother had to uh, endure her own uncertainty coupled with her natural tendency for anxiety. You know, didn't give me a whole lot to hang on to in a sense when I was growing up, although I loved them both very much. Oscar Hijuelos, in terms of Maria, when mm. 
you're taking a look at a book that's 20 years old yeah. and characters who are 20 years old. Granted yeah. that you've worked on this musical and yeah. rethought it, you're looking at them from a completely different angle. It's like you've walked to the other side of the room. And also, Oscar Hijuelos is different 20 yeah. years later. Yeah. Well, one of the ironies for me is I'm about to turn 60. <laughs> the Mambo King's Cesar Castillo is 61 when he meets his end and he's an old man, you know. <laughs> so that was very sober, you know. I said, what on earth were you thinking? But I published that book when I was 38 years old and 60 seemed 100 years from then. But I changed it internally. I mean, I think I'm more world-weary in a sense, but also wiser. One thing I've never done is buy into the, all the BS of the system. I think through Maria, I'm not quite sure. I mean, I'm pretty amazed by parts of that book and particularly by the sort of like sleight of hand I do in terms of the narrative by in including certain figures in the novel that were not present in the Mambo Kings. In terms of the narrative itself, the Mambo Kings could be seen as from the perspective of two, possibly three different folks, you know, the nephew, Eugenio, Cesar Castillo himself, and well, let's call it the ghost speak of Nestor, his memories. And whereas uh, Beautiful Mar Maria of My Soul is from the perspective of Maria, of her daughter, because she raises a daughter in the States, and some anonymous narrator who I believe has something to do with me, you know. So it's complicated. In the books, I'd love them to come out together, but you did say earlier that you felt that uh, Maria was slightly different take or contradictory to or? Almost a parallel line looking at it differently. Yeah. I mean, from a different yeah. angle. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. For me, uh, reading these two books in tandem presents a, a, a different view as well because then we can see Oscar Hijuelos without the fictional <laughs> overlay. Yeah, yeah. In terms of your own writing, there's also that peculiar piece at the end of Beautiful Maria where you play a small role and mm. that scene is duplicated virtually identically from a scene from your own life, from scenes from your own life, mm -hmm. meeting up with people at your readings. Yeah, it's kind of crazy. I mean, I'm not like an egotist, so I put myself in that novel, as it were, meeting my, the real Maria. Well, one of the fun concepts of the book is that the real Maria is around to hear about the Mambo King's novel and to see herself played by some other actress in the movie. So it's sort of she's dropped into the real world in which I apparently, this other Iwelos, my conceit was that he was friends or is or I am friends with Eugenio, Nestor's son. So I involved him in this scene where I meet the other Iwelos, as Borges might say, <laughs> meets uh, the other Maria and the real Maria. So it's got a lot of fun stuff, which uh, hardly anyone picked up on. But Times did. L.A. <laughs> Times did. I have to tell you a funny story. If you ever want to know if a musician's read, I can tell you for sure that they don't. I did a gig with, um, and by that a gig, I did a reading, and, and music was provided by Arturo O'Farrell, son of Chico O'Farrell, who won a Latin Grammy. We're always doing little bits together. And so I gave him a copy of Beautiful Maria, you know, and I said, you got to read it, man. You know, I, th I hope you enjoy it. Oh, I will. And he said, so talk to him. Said, oh, how'd you like? Oh, he said, I loved it, man. It was great. And, you know, I didn't say anything, but in fact, I mentioned his father and mother and him in <laughs> the later <laughs> part of the book. <laughs> I guess he didn't get that far. So I said, well, that figures. <laughs>
Well, Thoughts Without Cigarettes, Oscar Hicuelos, your memoir. Uh, first of all, um, at the end of the book, you're still smoking up a storm. What year did you quit? I've quit smoking on and off over the years. I've gone through a decade without smoking. And then I think after 2001, I started smoking again. And now? On tour, I've been smoking, I must confess. A little <laughs> bit. Not a lot. This makes you anxious. The title has to do with two things. First of all, I was thinking of Italos Fables, Confessions, Confessions of Zeno, in which one of the conceits was the guy is going through the whole novel trying to give up smoking. And so my original subtitle was Thoughts Without Cigarettes and parentheses with apologies to Italos Fable. But my editor said 99% of people will go, who the hell is Italos Fable? <laughs> you know, 1920s era Italian novelist, memoirist, whom uh, James Joyce particularly admired. I basically grew up in this atmosphere. As Cesar Castillo always smoked. You know, Mambo Kings are always scenes of guys sitting around a table just smoking and drinking. That's what I grew up with. So somehow it seemed like a pertinent title, although I'm really having a hard time explaining its relevance to the content. We were talking just before we turned on the recorder. We grew up in a similar enough environment that mm. we all knew people who took a lot of drugs. Mm -hmm. We began smoking pot about the same time, yeah. tripped a little bit, and mm. we have friends who became junkies. Mm. And some cleaned up their acts and some died. You were saying that you weren't sure until you decided to let it all go whether to put that in the book at all, that el yeah. element of it. Yeah. I mean, first of all, I have to say I wasn't a very good hippie and I wasn't a very good pothead because I'd, if I, if I, you know, I'd be with all these guys who would do, oh, man, let's get high. And then they'd get high and they'd say, oh, look, they'd be really happy. And I'd be like uptight and self-conscious. <laughs> it was awful. But the fact is I almost felt that writing about drug use in the city and growing up a certain way was a cliche, almost so overdone that to include it almost felt obsessive or self-indulgent. I didn't overdo it, but I have enough of it in there to at least persuade readers that I, you know, I did not grow up with a silver spoon in my mouth. The irony is if if you come from a certain kind of background and you sort of make it, it sort of negate your experience. I was a mess as a kid, and, and I had so many horrible things that I had to contend with, and just seeing people hurting themselves. And, and you know, I lost a lot of friends like that. One of my best friends, Tommy, he, you know, he OD'd. Eventually he died from what he did, and it's just tragic. You eventually worked through it, and you didn't become a writer, though you you know, went to City College. Mm -hmm. In fact, you became a working stiff, working in an <laughs> advertising agency. Yeah. yeah, and even that, it wasn't even the glamorous type. It was, uh, you know, everybody talks about Mad Men. I mean, I sort of, I intersected with that world uh, post 20 years later, but I caught the last bits of the old style advertising age when art directors were using light boxes. I loved every bit of that ambiance and so forth. But it was basically work that had to do with putting up signs and posters and, and you know, subway clock copy and transparencies. And it, was, it had nothing to do with writing. And I just, all I knew is I had to make a living. And even though people encouraged me about my writing, I never thought I was really would do it. When I published my first novel, I still I had my full-time job. In those days, even when you were in school, you did have that relationship with Donald Bartlemy, and yeah. he encouraged you down the road. He kept encouraging. He came to your yeah. first wedding. Yeah. Yeah, I think about that, the poor guy. <laughs> he was so kind. He was a very, very kind man. I have nothing but good things to say about him. But, you know, but like my father, he smoked and drank himself into a situation 
that wasn't good for him. One of the outcomes for you, though, uh, which becomes very clear later on in Thoughts Without Cigarettes, is that when he becomes passe during his lifetime, mm-hmm. you know, after being yeah. acclaimed as a great writer, suddenly the idea of what is aesthetics, what is great writing, what is good writing, and what are fads really comes comes into play. I think. Yeah, yeah, I... I watched him. You know, he used to get the front page of the of the New York Times review, a uh, book review. If I mention them, it's because for me, when I was a kid coming up, it was a big jump in my education, no level or whatever you want to call it, to go from reading the New York Daily News to the New York Times. So for me, it was always a very classy publication, rather bourgeois. I I will admit, but. For him, it was very hard because I remember front page, then page six, and then page, and, and towards the end of his life, he was relegated. His his reviews were these little scrawny things delegated to the uh, last pages, the far end. I don't know what happened. He uh, deserved better, I I feel, but he's he's revered now. I mean, within the academic world, he's very much revered. There's um, a speech given by John Gardner, who is now, except for Grendel, mostly forgotten, trashing Bartholomew, and yeah. yet years later, Gardner is gone, and Bartholomew is remembered better. I mean, you know, any kind of writer's vanity is ridiculous. Bartholomew distinguished himself as a, a very unique stylist, somewhere between Borges and Italo Calvino, but Americanized Southwestern. He was from Texas, and yet he was also urbane, and he had a wicked sense of humor a la Flann O'Brien, who was, you know, he was really crazy about that stuff. I think he was unique. He, he would tell me, uh, even though I was working in an advertising agency by day, he made a point of keeping in touch with me. Sometimes he'd even call me up at home, how are you doing, are you writing? And sometimes I'd go to his place on 11th Street after work, and we'd spend hours drinking, basically, and talking about books and stuff. And I admired him greatly, but the thing I most admired about him was his kindness. Did he offer certain specific suggestions to you about your writing that you were able to incorporate? (laughs) He suggested to me, first of all, he's always asking me to show him stuff, which I was too terrified to show him. Second thing, he kept after me, are you writing, are you writing? You know, not as emphatically, but he kept after me to give me just enough encouragement to keep me going. And a couple of times he asked if I would be interested in going to the, uh, I, you know, the famed Iowa School of Writing, you know, Alan Gerganis and, you know, all the, one, the, all the, you know, the great geniuses of American literature basically went there. But, you know, to me being a New York City guy, I just couldn't see myself in the wheat fields of uh, Iowa or whatever the hell they have. You know, hanging out and communing with the uh, eruditional uh, folks of literature. I just couldn't go for it. I mean, maybe I was too rigid or too, you know, or, or, or too much of a loner to go for something that would, or too much of a loser to go for something that would absolutely guarantee some degree of literary success. One other element of, of your early life is that even though you understood Spanish because your parents were immigrants, yeah. you, you barely spoke it. And there's an interview where you said, one of my conceits in the book is that while the language was always a part of me, it remained suppressed. Why is that a conceit? Mm-hmm. Meaning that on some level, you don't buy that argument about yourself. Subconsciously, I was very aware of Spanish. See, I, I spent a year in a hospital when I was a kid because of a, something I apparently caught in Cuba, what I call the Cuban disease. And I think there was stuff inside of me that 
has still still lingering. I think I was pretty much trauma. I mean, the weird thing is when I write my novels, I use a lot of energies from the stuff that happened to me to inform that world. But in terms of a memoir, you know, you, you, there's a moment when you say, damn, that really did happen to me. And what did it mean? And what what impact did it have? And the only impact I can imagine it had was that, you know, left me feeling outside the family flow, outside the culture, outside the language. Although I always understood Spanish completely. And I had an incident where, occasion where my father, you know, he'd hang out with his chum friends and they'd be drinking whiskey and all that until the late hours of night and, you know, talking. And I'd be right there with them. And years later, I was in a bar with a friend who was a Hispanist, you know. He taught Spanish and, you know, PhD. And these two guys who were pretty torn up, Puerto Ricans or whatever, were on the other side of the bar talking, you know, animatedly and rather drunk in Spanish. And my friend said, you know, do you have any idea what they're saying? I could understand exactly what they were saying. <laughs> it was mangled, you know, <laughs> slurred Spanish. And it was not. So I imagined growing up hearing that sort of threw another wrench into the works. Oscar Hijuelos, what prompted you to even write a memoir? It's interesting. A lot of the issues I address in the memoir, although albeit fictionally, I sort of brought up in my first novel, The Beauty, you know, Our House in the Last World, right, which sort of tells parallel stories in somewhat different detail than uh, thoughts. And maybe a third of thoughts is covered in Our House in the Last World. But, you know, it's a very emotional, raw book. And I remember writing, it said, people don't understand me, but this novel will alert the world as to what I am about and so forth. And, and you finish the book and whatever trepidations you have, you feel that part of me, that explanation of who I am is out there. But you know what? So few people read that novel that my subsequent career has been spent. You know, whenever I do readings, there are always a couple of Latinos there who are looking at me quizzically and trying to figure out how the, you know, F did this, this, you know, gringo write these, you know, books that seem to really speak to our hearts and souls and what on earth, you know. And so during the Q&As, it's always like, so, you know, how did you get this idea from the mom? I've even had people say, how do you know so much about Cubans, you know? <laughs> and, and, you know, I have a last name, Iguelos, I you know. But, I you know, over the years, it sort of started getting to me a little bit. And so I thought I would address these issues directly. And and however many people read Thoughts Without Cigarettes, I'll be that far, much farther ahead. But I guess a, a need to just set some record straight as best as I could at a certain point, you know, in my life. Everybody's now reminding me that I'm going to be 60 soon, which is shocking. I hate that. Ugh. And also in terms of the uh, publishing business, I, you know, I went... You mentioned the Mambo Kings musical. I lost three years on that. And so my last novel was 2003, and it wasn't until 2008 that I published Dark Dude, a young YA book that I think is pretty, you know, it's pretty raw and has good things in it. And I followed that up with two more because I wanted to get back into the conversation. Were these books written in tandem, or did Beautiful Maria come first? I wrote Beautiful Maria first, but it's interesting enough, uh, Richard, that when I was working on thoughts, a lot of that time I was also having to correct, make corrections on the manuscript, you know, on the proofs for uh, Maria. So they're kind of entangled in a way, but they came out exactly a year apart in the same month, June. A lot of the book goes back 
to, and I guess this is what you were saying about mm. trying to get people to understand, goes back to your father and your mother, your mm. trip to Cuba, mm-hmm. and it almost feels as if on some level you never felt fully comfortable about the fact that you are Cuban and are part of that tradition, mm-hmm. and it seemed as if this is kind of, I don't know, almost like a, a, a statement. yeah. Apology, a statement. Apology, or I don't know what. Well, it's just like saying it like it is. I mean, I wish I'd grown up in Havana some days. You know, I wish I'd grown up in the in the bosom of my you know uh, beloved Cubans in Miami. You know, but I could never have written Mambo Kings if I had, because you know my for whatever reason I was put on this earth, whether it was to break the stereo, you break down people's perception of stereotypes of Latinos, or to produce a books that make at least some people feel pretty interested in Latino culture or good about themselves. You know, I know that however messed up I may be in some regards, transcendence came by way of producing something that I'm still very proud of, you know, books like Mambo Kings and and later Mr. Ives Christmas and and other, I mean, I, I, I work really hard on each of my novels, so I, I'm not trying to fudge it, but some books really stand out to me, and uh, I don't think I could have produced them were I more comfortably Cubano, you know, and I think it's that contradiction within myself of wanting to be Cuban or craving or wanting that which I felt I had lost, you know, brushing up against the fact that I've always been a loner and want to go back to the source. It's fed my literature. Well, I think it, it also comes up in the fact that you were a guitar player, but you listened to rock and Beatles yeah. and yeah, stuff yeah. like that. And later on, suddenly this whole other world, as you're working on yeah. that novel, which is the world of Cubano music, yeah. suddenly opens up to you and, you yeah. know. Oh, I mean, I, I, I fell madly in love with the music I... I don't suppose even as a kid I could have been madly in love with because, you know, it requires a certain level of musical sophistication and also maturity. But I just loved it. My favorite stuff in Cuban music are actually the small con- conjuntos, like just the guitarists, the sonetos and all this, and, and maybe a clarinet and that kind of thing. But I fell in love with it. It was a way for me to fall madly in love with that, which I think I might have otherwise taken for granted. Which, of course, allows you to write the Mm. books that you write then. Yeah, yeah. In terms of working on a memoir, what is the role of research versus just memory and trying Mm. to get it right? Or or weren't you that concerned with getting it absolutely right? Well, there's so many random details that one must keep on top of. I, I have this whole section about my experience in the hospital when I was a kid. What I truly remember about it, little plastic, little paper club cups with the pleating along the rims and down the rims to the bottom and and the taste of medicines, the narrow hallways, the humming of machines, et cetera, et cetera. If I were to rely on the pure memory of all that, that whole section would have been the page. But what I take the liberty to use is imagining or trying to reconstruct the feelings I must have had. Can you call it speculative nonfiction? Yes. But in terms of my emotion and my attitudes about it, it's very, very true. Fact, I'm not sure. 
But I really tried to capture uh, the realness and rawness of certain emotions in that book. How did you try to get your memory jogged while you were kind of talking about the year-by-year progression from those days, you know, through adolescence? I have a, a really bad memory. I just have the worst memory, and I don't keep notes. And my mother was my library for many years. She was my reference library. Oh, whatever happened there? Do you remember when that, and you know, even though she was in her 90s, she could still recall things that had happened 35 years ago. But unfortunately, I did not have her around. I have such spare memories of my youth that what I put into the book are the first things that came at me, the things that came to the surface. Not that I had a whole lot of variety in my upbringing. Occasionally, people will remind me, oh, do you remember so-and-so or and I'll hear the name again for the first time in 30, 40 years and say, damn, I wish I'd put him in the book. But you can't cover everything. You do remember the strange events after your father died where he came back to you. It's a curious thing, Richard. I mean, this is nothing to do with the book, but when my father died, I was so aware of a spirit aspect to him. It's scary. I don't know if I so identified with him on some interior level that you know, I had to keep him alive or something, but I felt I saw his spirit, a ghost. I used to dream about him. I'm not saying every night, obviously, but when I started writing, I, develop, I started to develop these horrible eczemas and uh, just from the stress and guilt of survivor's guilt, I, I guess you would call it, to the point that I once went to a dermatologist and the dermatologist took a look at me and actually gasped, chest stuff, you know, it was really awful. And so I had a dream one night in which my father appeared to me by a stream. He was walking by a stream, and he motioned me over to him, and he washed me with the water. And I swear, that stuff went away. When I, when, when I woke up in the morning, it was gone. Psychosomatic, I don't know, but it was uh, to me it was such a mystical and in terms of my writing empowering event that, you know, I went on. On the other hand, my mother, when, after my mother passed away, I'd been waiting to see her, and I haven't. The piece that appeared recently in Newsweek about a trip you made to Havana, have you been back since then? Yeah, I went back in 2002 to visit one of my father's sisters, Chelo, who was in her 90s then. And it was at a moment when the Bush, uh, you know, Clinton thing, you know, they they weren't penalizing people for actually visiting their relatives, you know. And so I went down there and I found it very interesting. I liked it. I mean— I, I think, you know, I curse the politics involved with the whole situation because it's denied, you know, generations of young Cubans access to their legacy, you know. However politically you may feel about it all. I know in the, at the Pacifica station, you guys <laughs> are not going to, uh, you know, uh, much of, you know, very progressive politics uh, and so forth, which doesn't always coincide with the uh, feelings of certain Cubans, particularly those of the Miami exile community. But you can't blame them, man. You know, they lost everything. This is going to be a weird question, but um, <laughs> when, you're, when you're writing a book and you're relying on a very faulty memory about events and you're trying to figure out what happened and all you can get is a sense, in essence, you become your own unreliable narrator. Yeah, I guess that's the case. I'm trying to, I, I'm trying to think what is... What is the truth, as Pontius Pilate once said? What is the truth? Is it, is it what you were left with after, years after the fact? Or is it reportage, you know, as what happened? I mean, I think I pretty much report things as they were. I'm not always sure if I remember things 
as they were. I mean, for example, I have this scene. I remember going to visit this guy named Teddy Morgenbesser with my father, and he used to take my father, and talk. they talk about Cuba and all this. And so I put in this scene where, you know, my father is talking about his brother and the farms and having left Cuba and all that. And I swear, I swear I heard that, but I couldn't prove it in a million years. I was also fascinated, of course, toward the end of the book when you begin to talk about the other writers that you mm. knew, because I've interviewed many of those people. You coming from a non-literary background, yes. walking into that world yeah. must have been both awesome and yet at the same time very deflating. In a way, I can see why people have to attach enormous importance to the arts and, and so forth. But the qualities I, I respond to the most in writers, you know, is basically, as I said about Bartholomew's kindness, you know, I've never been one to look around the room or network. And that's how I judge people. I've never had an uppity attitude about anything. And, you know, over the years, I've realized that it's not an asset to be that way in, in this business, that you have to be a relentless self-promoter, et cetera, et cetera. And I've never been that way. And what I felt as a youngster was so naive and guileless that when I encountered these holier-than-thou figures, not all. I mean, Nate Mailer was lovely. He'd come up to me and say, you have a big blocky head. I'd like to bump my head into yours. You know, he'd say things like that to me, you know. It's kind of how he talked, you know. But I found some, you know, I don't like snobbery. And there were times when I encountered what I perceived as literary snobbery, and that still turns me off. I could give you a list of people who are literary snobs. And I always had a little bit of that inferiority thing happening. One thing I hear the most when I go on tour is, you are too humble. I think thought, I don't know if it's a perfect book or if it's the best book I could have possibly produced, but I think it's the best book. I could produce given the time frame I had and so forth. And I think it's unique. I don't know if you felt that way, but it has a different feeling, I believe, from most memoirs. I don't know. Oscar Hijuelos, you do make a, a comment. You said that where the book ends, the story begins uh, in terms of writing a novel. My statement was I felt that a lot of times people write books that leave you with the emotion that should have been the precedent for beginning. The, in other okay. words, to me, it's all warm-up. And it's sort of like it's all about the discovery of a single emotion, whereas I try to jump to the quick. And like Mr. Ives' Christmas, for example, not to digress too much, I immediately let everybody know that this is a tragedy and this is what the emotions attending the book are. And then you build on that. I'm not saying I'm a, you know, right. uh, a Cervantes or anything, but you know, I have my own little standards. How does your brother think about the book? I don't know. I haven't talked to him. I think I'm pretty kind to him in the book. First of all, you can't think about that stuff when you're writing a memoir. Otherwise, you, go, you know, you have to vet it with everybody. Is that it? You call up the people. <laughs> Fortunately for me, if I had to vet it, I'd have to go to a seance. The, the vetting seance is, oh, medium, would you contact and ask so-and-so if it was okay that you mentioned this and that? Well, what, one of the, the main things I walked away from the book is that the uh, American English language Latino writer mm-hmm. is pretty much been ignored in this country. Yeah, I think so. I mean, occasionally you hear about some bright lights and uh, Francisco Goldman got, you know, he's also represented by Binky Urban, who is so connected. Uh, Francisco Goldman's bur- blurbs, and most of them are by Binky Urban's authors, you know, Richard Ford, et cetera, et cetera. 
then you've got Juno Diaz, uh, who's a lovely person. I just don't hear about anybody. Maybe I'm hanging out in the wrong place, but I just don't see writers, you know, Latino writers. Like, guys, I mean, I I think a wonderful writer like Rudy Anaya, for example, produced wonderful books. You just don't hear about these cats, you know? And uh, I don't know where I should be looking. I mean, I don't go on. See, maybe I'm wrong because I don't go online. It's like channel surfing to me. I don't go online and, and, and go to the... 7,000th channel involving, you know, this or that. I just, I'm just on an internet and not, so maybe I'm missing a lot of stuff. But what I, from what I could see, like journals like New York Review of Books and New York Times and, and magazines like Newsweek and Time and, you know, where, whatever you're looking at, I don't see the Latino, any embracing of, you know, it's like we're like been set off to the side, you know. I regret that because in the 90s after Mambo Kings came out, there was a gush of interest in all that, you know. I can, you know, I think writers like Christina Garcia, of course, Cubana, and, and uh, you know, Carlos Ide, Cubano. You know, Carlos Ide wrote this very interesting, albeit flawed, uh, you know, uh, uh, memoir. In some ways, it's, it should to me, it should have been expanded. But, you know, it's got a little tiny space in the New York Times. And then there's Sunday. And so, you know, to me, it deserved more, you know. So what kind of decision-making is involved, I don't understand. Oscar Hijuelos, now I think you've pretty much mined the Mambo Kings and you've written your memoirs. Are you working on something else? I'm sort of playing around with a young uh, adult novel and I also want to do a, a, kind of like a chapbook thing for a friend of mine, uh, actually the fellow who bought Beautiful Money in My Soul. He's now within our art house and uh, I'm trying to figure out something for him. Then I want to do a big book that revisits the territory of of uh, Mr. Ives' Christmas. And because I've been thinking about religion and God and, and all this sort of stuff, it's very antiquated, I know, but it offers me a kind of uh, juice. I think I am internally <laughs> very religious. I mean, I think there is something, and I want to understand why. So that's why I would write about it. I think I know there is something, but I couldn't prove it. One element I noticed in Thoughts Without Cigarettes, which is something I've seen a lot, which is what I'm beginning to think of as transferable talents. People who are musicians and artists can become writers easily. And you kind of say that maybe it's because we have an ability for self-exploration, but there's also imagination. I mean, Mm. when you're writing a novel, is there any relationship to that and just sitting in your guitar and riffing? Once you have the chops, playing the guitar is immeasurably pleasurable. And if you have imaginative chops or you can write songs, it's endless. Comparatively effortless. I mean, you know, the other day I heard some Dylan tunes and I said, you got to give the guy credit, man. He knew how to take very simple melody lines and turn them into these really remarkable tight tunes, you know. On the other hand, I think writing is about one of the hardest things in the world. But the music connection gives you a good ear for sound. And so you can hear the melody in words, I would say. But in terms of the imaginative overlap, I would say either you have it or you don't, whether you're a musician or a writer. But I don't really think that one particularly predicts the other. Is there any difference in the rewrite between working on a book like Beautiful Maria and working on a book like Thoughts Without Cigarettes? Maria, you know, it's curry in a hurry publishing. Back in the day, you, you'd... Submitted a manuscript, they'd correct it, you'd get it back, you'd have six months 
to go over. Now it's like a week, two weeks. So what I do is when I look at either book, I, some things I wish I had done is there are a couple of paragraphs in there in which I wish I'd had the time or foresight to, to cut back. Not because they're bad. It's just that they just go on a bit too long, in my opinion. Other people may love it. Same thing with thoughts. There were some language issues I would have liked to have dealt with more. I really didn't have time to go online or wherever to check out who were the Mets playing in 1960-whatever it was, Two. in 62. <laughs> it's, uh, it's the hurried nature and publishing schedules that make the luxury of going slowly over a manuscript with the tender, loving care that the readers deserve. And I think I pretty much do that. I, I read my final drafts to avoid repetition and, and, and to spiff up the language. I did it. If you see the galley, the ARC for thoughts, and you compare it to this, they're quite, quite different. In other words, I'm a meticulous reviser, but I'm always catching stuff I wish I'd changed earlier. Now that you're teaching writing, yeah. I've been told you can teach a lot of things. You can't teach talent. Talent. What is it? Come on. I mean, <laughs> it's such a pretentious... Whoever told you that is, <laughs> so, you know, it's all about developing taste and, and an ear. And, and you know, you need some chops. You need some natural gifts for being willing to let yourself go. You need an ear. But I don't know what talent is. I, I think it's sort of having an inward vision of the world that's your own. And I tell my students that uh, the most important thing about writing is voice. People like books for voice. It's like spending time with a companion, you know? I mean, if a book is nicely done, you say, I feel like I know this guy. To me, it's more less about talent than about being willing to figure yourself out to the extent that you could put it on paper and be persuasive. You've been listening to a 2011 interview with the late author Oscar Hijuelos, who passed away in October 2013. Feedback on this and other Radio Walensky podcasts is appreciated. You can write to bookwaves at hotmail.com and feel free to search out other interviews at bookwaves.com or on the kpfa.org website. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. 